Good evening. It's good to see you here this evening. I trust that you have been reading the book of Acts all the way along as we've been going through for several months. And I trust that you're reading these later chapters. We have the opportunity in some of these chapters to sit in the courtroom and listen to a hearing. Things haven't changed much. I don't know if any of you have been listening much to the hearing, the testimony. There are a few parallels, but we're not going to go into that tonight. The Apostle Paul, as we saw him last week, was moved from Jerusalem down to the coastal city of Caesarea. Not because he had done anything wrong, but because the Jews had a plot to try to kill him. There were more than 40 who vowed that they were never going to eat or drink until they had killed the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul lived another 30 or so years. I doubt that any of them made it quite that far. <clears throat> and then that's not the only time they f tried to form a plot to kill him. But anyway, so as we pick up tonight in Acts chapter 24, we're going to find that Paul is down in the coastal city of Caesarea Maritima. If we can have some pictures up here, we'll, we'll just go through a few pictures. This is the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. It is about halfway up the coastal part of Israel. It's north of Tel Aviv, it's south of Haifa. And it, is, it, it was the city of Caesarea, maritime Caesarea, not Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16, that's inland. This was down on the coast. There were a lot of cities named after Caesar. When you're the emperor of a kingdom, it happens, okay? This one was built by Herod the Great around the time Christ was born. The place where this picture is taken, you're actually standing very close to where Paul would have been in prison, in Herod's palace, and you're looking north along the, the coast of the Mediterranean, and this area up here is a man-made um, fortress and was the edge of a harbor that lays beyond that along the coast. Over here, you have a long, flat area that was a large stadium. Now, a stadium in the Roman emperor was a place for races, for chariot races. The word stadium actually refers to the length of the race. And uh, so as Paul was here in prison, uh, down in this area, this, this fortress and city all around had been built for the sole purpose of honoring Caesar by Herod. And it became the provincial capital. It became the Roman center of government for Israel. Jerusalem was not the Roman center of government, even though it had been the Jewish capital for a thousand years before that. <clears throat> this is an aerial view, and this is farther up the coast, so you see there are no buildings here, but this long line, looks like a railroad track, is actually an aqueduct. Part of the problem with building a city on the beach is there's no water. Well, that is no drinkable water. Lots of water, but it's all salty. So if you're going to build a city... You need water. 
Well, that's no problem because way over here in the ridge, 12 miles away, there's a spring. Well, that's no problem. You just run a pipe. Except in the ancient world, the pipe looked like this. It was an aqueduct. They built a stone aqueduct 12 or 13 miles from the mountain all the way out to the beach so they could build a palace for the provincial government and name it in honor of Caesar. The water from the spring flowed downhill 12 or 13 miles to the coast. It was all engineered, so the water flowed. There were no pumps needed. It was all gravity-fed. Amazing stuff. And you see the stone arches here. The Romans were the masters of the stone arch in the ancient world. They're not the first ones that used the stone arch, uh, but they are the ones who mastered it and really made bridges and aqueducts uh, available or capable all over the world. Here's another view of it. This, it actually was doubled. There's, there's one here, and then they built the next one right beside it. You can see some of the crumbled ruins. Uh, it's actually a double aqueduct. It was at one time a double aqueduct. Here's a closer view, and obviously you can see this is built right on the beach uh, where it's down near the city. You can see the stonework from larger stones to the smaller stones up above, right on the beach. And then this is how it functioned. This was the water channel up here at the top. So they built this entire bridge system just so they could make a stone ditch to bring fresh water from the mountain down to the town. Now, in the Middle Eastern sun, in the middle of the summer, when that water has been in the sunlight all day while it's traveling through that stone duct, or I, I don't know if I want to know how it tasted when it got down to the city, but incredible engineering uh, in the ancient world. We think we're so clever today. Uh, they, were, they were very intelligent people. This is the amphitheater at Caesarea built by, the, uh, by Herod, uh, probably with a lot of slave labor, but this was very typical of a Roman or Greek city. It could seat thousands of people. This is all made of stone being stacked up. As you can see here along the side, the stones are just piled up and then the seating is built into it. And uh, they have restored these amphitheaters in a lot of places around the uh, Mediterranean world. And, they, and now they still use them for public plays and concerts and things. And uh, this one, when you're seated in this, you're looking out at the Mediterranean. The uh, stage is down in front of you on the beach and behind you is the Mediterranean Sea. Just incredible uh, architecture, engineering. So Paul was in jail within 100 yards of this amphitheater and the jail he was in at the palace was between the amphitheater and the stadium. So there would have been times when there would have been tens of thousands of people gathered in crowds outside of his jail cell or room, wherever he was being kept. And he would have been able to hear the commotion and the noise of the city outside when he was being kept in jail. Uh, this is a typical stone archway under some of the buildings that goes out, gives access out to the beach area. This is uh, some of the bedrock right al along the shore and the palace that Herod built there 
for the provincial government was built right into the bedrocks on the beach, right on the water. In fact, this is the foundation area of some of the building. You can see where they set pillars into some holes in the rock. And there was a, they believe there was an in-ground swimming pool in here for the use of the guests of the house. Hey, when you're running the government, you can do anything you want, right? Well, you, you could in those days. All kinds of money to spare. There were man-made fortifications and buildings on this, which, of course, over the years have all been eroded away. You can see some of the building stones left. But this, this uh, palace went all the way out here, and uh, there were dining areas for guests. I'm sure it was fabulously beautiful. And in this provincial capital building, government building, there were evidently holding cells or rooms to detain prisoners of state. And so this is where Paul was held, somewhere right here on the shore uh, for two years. You can see the bedrock uh, coming in. You're not going to try to beach a boat here. You're not going to try to sail a ship in right here, which is why they had to make the man-made harbor farther up the beach. So you can see the rocks. This is all rocky in here. So they built a protective harbor up here, and the harbor is beyond that. You can see some of the seating for the stadium built into the hillside here. You can see other buildings and rubble. From the Roman time, there is a crusader fortress built over in here. Again, some of the stonework, part of what's left from a Roman arch. This is a picture of the stadium. They would have run, here's the center of it. They would have run their races around here. You can see somebody's made an artwork of a horse and chariot. So Paul's prison, the, the building where the prison was, would have been over here on these rocks. So that's where Paul was. The amphitheater is over there on the other side. So Paul was right in the middle of the center of Roman government when he was in prison here for two years. There's some of this, uh, see, this is the... Uh, these are the box seats for the important guests. Uh, this is typical mosaic from the era. This is probably not, does not go back to that area. era. It's not in the palace, but this is in one of the buildings in the town. Um, these are typical mosaic tile floors, all different colors of tile and stones that are used to make all different kinds of pictures and patterns. And these actually are not some of the most fancy that we saw over there, but you can, this is, uh, this is a, a, a bird of some kind drinking out of a bowl or eating out of a bowl, another bird perched on the side. Um, just amazing artwork that was done in the buildings. Again, some of the ruins from the Roman buildings. And then an aerial view, out here would have been that in-ground swimming pool, the buildings of the, the palace basically built here on this rocky point. The amphitheater is over here to the left. Here's the stadium and the harbor is farther up the beach. Gives you an idea of the layout of it. And here again, an aerial view down here is where the palace was. The amphitheater is down past that. Here's the stadium for the chariot races. Up here is the harbor. Not real big, but it was enough to put in a couple of ships. And it was no doubt from this harbor that Paul was put on a ship 
and set sail for Rome uh, in chapter 27 of the book of Acts. And then the rest of this is, was, was various buildings from the town uh, back at the time of the first century. So it gives you a picture uh, a little bit of the setting uh, in which these chapters, 24, 25, and 26, took place. It's really about the only biblical event that we have that took place uh, along the coast there at Caesarea. There were no other Old Testament or New Testament accounts of anything going on there. So I want you to turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 24. And we have three chapters to go through tonight, or most of three chapters. And I am not going to go through it verse by verse. We don't have the time, and, and you don't have the patience. And I'm not going to find out if you have the patience. But I hope you're reading these accounts. I, I hope you're reading through the book of Acts. I hope you're reading over these chapters each week as we get ready for the Sunday services and maybe even afterward. That as you're reading through this and walking with these men and women through these events and with Paul through this time. This was, I'm sure, a very trying time for Paul. It tested his patience. I don't know about you, but I get impatient with government red tape. I mean, it's all I can do to go through the line at the driver's license bureau, you know? And we all have stories about those kind of things with the paperwork and this and that and the other thing. And, and uh, I've lived in f four different states over the years getting registrations and driver's licenses. And it's always interesting to see how people do things. You do a couple things here in Ohio that I don't understand, but that's okay. I don't have to understand it. I just have to do it, right? Do you ever get impatient with proceedings, with red tape, with paperwork, with waiting on something from the government? Paul didn't do anything wrong. Paul wasn't the man they should have arrested. The men they should have arrested were the men who were beating up Paul. They're the ones that should have been on trial. They don't even show up here as witnesses. And yet we have Paul going through over two years of waiting. But being the Apostle Paul, being a believer who knows Christ, he does not waste the time. And every time he gets an audience with an authority, he ends up giving them the gospel. And so Paul is going to use these opportunities to share the gospel with some important people. We begin in chapter 24, in verse 1, finding out that there's a five-day period of time between where we left off last week at the end of chapter 23. They moved Paul down to Caesarea from Jerusalem to protect him. And then five days later, the high priest and some others traveled to Caesarea, something that is going on under current, behind the scenes in all of these texts, is the Jews and the Romans were constantly jockeying for position. 
and for influence. And, and the Romans were always trying to remind the Jews that they were in charge, and the Jews were always trying to remind the Romans that, that they were someone to contend with. And so the Jews wanted the trial in Jerusalem. The Romans wanted it moved down to the Roman government center. The Jews are going to try several times to get Paul's trial moved back to Jerusalem because they have more influence there. They can start a riot. They can influence the crowds. Down in Caesarea, it's a Roman colony. Who's going to listen to a couple of Jewish rabble-rousers? They're not going to be able to start a riot down there. And so you have these tensions that are going on in these events. So we have five days that Paul's waiting in Caesarea, and these Jewish men come down. They bring an attorney, some specialist of some kind named Tertullus, and they bring charges to the governor against Paul. So um, Felix calls Paul in, summons Paul, verse 2, and Tertullus begins to accuse him in these following verses. I'm going to go through these verses. His, his, his statement is this. Since we have, and, and of course you can see uh, these uh, people buttering up and, you know, and acknowledging the authority and, well, anyway, you can see it. Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. That's just the introduction. For we have found this man a real pest. Well, maybe you find some other people a pest, but there's no law against that. And there wasn't then. He is a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. In verse 5, there's a little bit of truth, but there's falsehood mixed in with it. It is true that they found this man to be a real pest, but that's their problem, not his. The second thing is he is a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. My friends, there's just always been dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. You don't have to stir it up, it's just there. And secondly, he, they accuse him of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. He was, in fact, a highly qualified, highly trained Jewish rabbi who had gone on a preaching tour across all of the Jewish colonies of the Mediterranean world. But they sort of forget that. And they focus on the fact that he's associated with this Jesus sect, this Nazarene guy, and they call him a ringleader. In verse 6, they say, Another false accusation. He even tried to desecrate the temple. He wasn't. He was doing everything according to Jewish law. You can go back and read the chapters we just looked at, 22 and 23. He was doing everything right. It was the Jews who assumed he was doing it wrong. 
but he was doing it by the, by the book. And then we arrested him. Yeah, they did. They jumped him. They were beating him. They were trying to kill him. That's their version of arrest. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. No, they didn't. They wanted to kill him. They had no interest in giving him a fair trial. They still don't. But, verse 7, Lysias, the commander, he's the Roman commander of the fortress, uh, the, temple in, uh, the fortress Antonia there in Jerusalem. He came along and with much violence he took him out of our hands. Lysias saved Paul's life from being beaten to death by a Roman mob. You see, this guy, he's putting a Washington spin on it. With much violence, he took him out of our hands. It was that Lysias guy. It's his fault. Ordering his accusers to come to you. This Lysias has ordered his accusers to come down here to you. We just wanted to judge him by our own laws. That's all we were doing, sir. So, verse 8 continues, By examining him yourself concerning all of these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. It will be plain as day that when you ask him some questions, you will realize that everything I'm telling you is the truth. And he doesn't have to ask very many questions before it's plain as day that he's not really sure what happened. And he's sure he can't trust the Jews. But he's also sure that his main job is keeping the peace in Israel. Always remember that. I mentioned this last week. These, these officials who were put here by Rome, their main job was keeping the peace. To keep riots from breaking out, to keep insurrections and rebellions from breaking out across the Roman Empire. There was a rebellion at Corinth, hundred I forget, 130, 40 years, uh, maybe not that far, but before Christ, the city of Corinth participated in an insurrection against the city of Rome. And the Roman army came in and demolished the city. They took every man, they either killed the men or took them slaves, and they took the slave, the women and children slaves and killed many of them. And they, they, they demolished the city of Corinth. And it wasn't until many decades later that it was rebuilt. The Romans would, would, would not tolerate insurrection in the colony. So Felix and Festus, one of their major goals is to keep peace. So you have the political element of trying to keep the Jews from getting too upset while trying to enforce Roman law, while trying to figure out what in the world actually happened and to see what justice they can do. You put that all in a blender and chop it up and see what you get. By the way, this man Felix was not highly qualified uh, for government. He was a slave uh, who had become the governor through the influence of his brother who had paid a sum to Rome so that Felix could become a governor. That was not unheard of in those days. In fact, if, if you were a slave in the Roman world, you had, a, you had a good chance of being dead, but you also had a good chance of becoming wealthy. It was, a, it was kind of a strange 
situation. And this particular slave becomes a governor. But he was not really very good at what he was doing. He, he caused a lot of problems. Uh, he he kind of had a hammer, uh, a walk heavy, carry a big stick kind of mentality. Uh, his sense of justice was smash it with a hammer. And so after two years, they, they took him back to Rome, and they would have put him on trial if his brother hadn't paid some more money and gotten him off the hook. So Felix, is, he's out of his league here, but he's trying. He's trying. Now, after this, Tertullus gets done with his speech in verse 8, then in verse 9, the rest of the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So all of the Jews that are there join in with the false accusations against Paul. And then in verse 10, the governor allows Paul to speak. As you read these three chapters, 24, 25, and 26, especially Festus, you'll be careful to, you'll, you'll notice that they were very careful to follow Roman procedure and the Roman law. And Luke is very careful to record it for us in the book of Acts. It's very interesting. Uh, is they, are, they are dotting their I's and crossing their T's according to Roman law. They're being careful. Maybe because Paul was a Roman citizen, maybe simply because they were uh, doing things in an orderly way in that regard, as governing officials. But anyway, in verses 10 through 21, the Apostle Paul is allowed to speak, and he basically tells the story of what happened and, and is saying, they have no grounds to accuse me of any wrongdoing. He, he talks about uh, what he was doing 12 days ago. He went up to Jerusalem to worship. And in verse 12, he says, Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. He wasn't standing on a, on a soapbox on the corner preaching and causing a ruckus. He wasn't in the temple trying to teach the crowds and a riot started. He was not instigating any kind of a discussion. He was simply going into the temple for participation in the ceremonies in the temple, according to the law. And some people recognized him from Asia, who had probably caused some of Paul's problems over in Asia, and they jumped him. They, they came to the conclusion that he was in there, he brought some Gentiles in with him, and they, they just jumped uh, to conclusions and jumped him. But Paul is speaking here, they have no grounds to accuse me. Verse 13, they cannot prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Now to this I admit that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I am serving the God of our fathers, the Jews, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that which is written in the prophets. And he goes on down through, and in verse 21, he comes back to the statement which caused the uproar in the Sanhedrin in the previous uh, session when the commander had to save him the third time. Other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So part of Paul's point here is, Governor, this is a religious debate. This is, this is a matter of a religious discussion and a religious disagreement. I have not broken any Roman laws. It's a matter of a discussion over theological issues. 
And, and, and in all fairness to Felix and Festus and King Agrippa, I think they all realize that. There's, there's actually nothing by Roman law that they have as grounds to keep this guy. Of course, with all the Jewish influence that is there and the Jews wanting him to be kept in prison, he ends up being in prison for two more years. But they, they recognize they have no grounds to keep him. So at this point, Paul's imprisonment is completely unfair. It's unjustified. It, it's frankly unreasonable. And what would your attitude be right about now? I, I mean, all you need is one person to butt in front of you at the checkout line, and you're... And you're having issues with your patients, right? No, I'm not that way at all. So, again, we see Paul's perseverance and going through all of these things. Verse 22 acknowledges that Felix has a sense of what's going on. Felix having a more excellent, exact knowledge of the way put them off. I believe, if I remember right, Felix is married to a Jewish girl um, and has some idea of, of the debate and what's going on. Felix basically takes a neutral position and, and makes a no decision here. He, he puts them off saying, in verse 22, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. Now, at that very moment, he has a letter from Lysias, the commander, explaining exactly what happened. He doesn't need anything else from Lysias. He's not going to gain anything from having Lysias come down. What this is, it's a reason to delay any further discussion. It's a reason to take a recess and say court is adjourned until future notice. So he's trying to diffuse the situation. He's scratching his head and saying, how do I get out of this? And he says, we'll decide, we'll figure this out later after Lysias comes down. So verse 23, he gives orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet to have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends <clears throat> from ministering to him. So it seems that he was under some form of house arrest there in Caesarea. He was not allowed to leave. I don't think he was allowed to leave town. I don't know if he was allowed to go outside of the building or not. <clears throat> but he is allowed to have friends. And no doubt Luke had access to Paul throughout this period of time. <clears throat> and by the way, many people believe that it was during this two-year period of time when Paul is uh, in in jail at Caesarea, that Luke travels around the land of Israel and he goes and he interviews some of the people who were firsthand witnesses of Christ's ministry, and that may be where he gained some of the material for uh, the book of Acts. Now, I have no doubt the Holy Spirit could have simply inspired him to write it all, but, um, but, but that's what very well may have, uh, have happened. In fact, some people believe, and, and I, there may be some, I, I haven't pursued this, it may very well be that, that some people believe that, that Luke wrote um, 
the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, not only as a treatise for his friend Theophilus, but also as a legal treatise for Paul's case in his appeal to Rome, that it actually became a legal document stating the grounds for why Paul does what he does and who he is that, that Paul may have used at Rome. I don't know how accurate that is, but these are some of the, uh, the thoughts of what's going on in these, these times. So in verses 26 through 27, uh, Felix keeps Paul in prison for two years, and it says there are two reasons for that. Number one, he's hoping to get a bribe. It was illegal for him to receive any bribes, it, as it was across the Roman Empire, but it's widely known that it really didn't do much to slow down the bribes in the Roman Empire. And also, it was politically expedient because he was trying to keep the Jews happy, so Felix left Paul in prison. But uh, uh, let, me, let me jump back to verses 23 to 25. There's something very important here in the life of Felix as a man. In the time that he has Paul in the prison, verse 24, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. So at some time during this period of time, it appears that Felix had private conversation, or perhaps several, with Paul about the gospel. And what are they discussing? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment. Well, Felix was married three times, and the girl that he's married to now was under 20 years old, and he stole her away from her husband. Maybe he, had, maybe he was convicted about righteousness. Maybe he was convicted about self-control. Maybe he was concerned about the judgment. But instead of coming to Christ, what does he do? He says, go away. Maybe we'll talk about this later. Felix had an opportunity. And, and that really, I'm, I'm sure Paul was very mindful that, that this was why he was there, was for these opportunities. And we should never back down from those opportunities. You and I, when we have an opportunity to talk to someone about the Lord, we don't know if they're going to be like a Felix and brush it off, or we don't know if they're going to be like um, Lydia at Philippi, who upon the first hearing warmly receives the gospel and becomes an anchor in a local church. You and I have no idea how God is going to use us or the seed that we plant. But it's not up to us, is it? It's just up to us to share it. And that's what Paul does. Um, I have an acquaintance that... Uh, I've known since we were in college. He was a little bit younger than me, but uh, I knew his family, and, and his dad was a pastor that I knew. His name was Scott Carter. At, at, I say was. I think Scott's still around here on the planet, walking around. Um, I haven't seen him in years. Uh, but Scott's uh, an American guy, and 
in college, he met a girl from the Ukraine. Her name was uh, Lisa Vins. Some of you have heard of Georgi Vins, the man who was exiled from Russia back in the Jimmy Carter administration. He had been in prison uh, in many times in the Soviet Union for, being, for preaching the Bible and teaching and pastoring churches and publishing Christian literature. And anyway, he was exiled to the United States. Well, Lisa was one of his daughters. And Scott married Lisa. And uh, after the wall came down in East Berlin, Scott and Lisa ended up going back to the Ukraine as missionaries to plant churches in Kiev and other places in the Ukraine. And I don't remember how the meeting happened, but one day they just happened to meet with a man and struck up a conversation with him. And in the process of time, Lisa was telling him about who she was, that she had, uh, yes, she had an American passport, she was married to an American, but, but she grew up in Kiev. In fact, she had been arrested as a teenager for passing out tracks on the corner of the street. So she had a jail record. Uh, don't always recommend marrying a jailbird, but it works out sometimes. So they, they struck up a conversation with this guy, and Lisa's saying, yeah, my father was uh, in prison here in Russia as a pastor, and we, he ended up being exiled to the United States. And the man has this strange look on his face. The longer she talks, the, the more he's looking at her, and he said, you know, what, what was your father's name? And she said, it was Georgi Vins. And he said, I met your father. Your father was in prison, and I'm a psychiatrist. And I got a call from the prison to come and interview this prisoner, and my assignment was to declare him insane. And I spent hours with your father talking to him, and he told me, all of these things you're telling me about the Bible and about Jesus. And, and he said, I found your father to be a fascinating man and anything but insane. And here was Lisa, years later, again, giving him the gospel. Folks, we never know when we're going to have a chance to plant, when we're going to have a chance to water, and when God's going to bring forth fruit. But Paul is mindful that it, that is his assignment when he is here. Chapter 25, um, Felix uh, is hauled off to Rome. His rule is over. Festus is now the new governor. Festus came from Ro uh, Roman royalty, was much better suited for the position. Um, and he travels to Jerusalem when he, he, he gets on the scene, but he goes up to Jerusalem, meets with the Jews, and the Jews request for Festus, the governor, now to bring Paul from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. You see, again, that tug of war. They want to get him back in the center of Jewish influence where they have a little bit more bite to their bark. Festus travels down to, to Caesarea, verses six through nine, and um, Festus holds a brief hearing there. Uh, the Jews come down. Uh, the Jews accuse Paul in verse seven. Paul answers them in verse eight. In verse nine, Festus asks Paul if it's okay with him if they move the hearing to Jerusalem. And that this is the moment when Paul appeals 
to Caesar. Paul appeals his case to Caesar. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried, not in Jerusalem. This is the center of Roman government. This is where I ought to be. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. Paul is not pulling any punches here. If then I am a wrongdoer and I have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. You have no authority to send me to, Rome, to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. Now you've watched enough police shows to know that when they have that suspect in that interrogation room, handcuffed to the table, and they're grilling him and the file is open and they're slapping the pictures down on the table and saying, you know, Ch -ch -ch -ch. and as soon as he says, lawyer, that's it. Right? That's what happened here. As soon as Paul said, I appeal my case to Caesar, that's the end of the trial. Now there's only one step. There's only one thing to be done. Send him up the pipeline. And so, and this is Paul's right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. But again, you'll notice there are no Roman charges against him. There are only Jewish accusations against him. And those accusations are of a religious nature. They, they weren't accusing Paul as Jews of claiming to have some king besides Caesar, etc., etc., so he appeals to Caesar. Well, now the only question that confronts Festus is, okay, I have to send some kind of a letter to Caesar explaining this mess. So what do I say? I'm, I'm sure that these guys were just glad to see the sails go over the horizon when, when Paul left. You know, sometimes you just wish your problems would go away. And in this case, I'm sure that that's, that was ultimately what these men wanted. So in verses 13 through 22 of chapter 25, Festus consults with Agrippa about the, the situation. Uh, let's look at verse 18. Uh, let's go back to 17. This is in verses 13 through 17. This is where Festus is explaining how carefully he has followed Roman procedure. And in verse 17, So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to Caesar, or appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I heard him ordered him to be kept in custody 
until I send him to Caesar. So, verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. So this is why um, Agrippa is brought into the scene. Festus is consulting with him to try to decide, what do I say to Caesar? Why, are, why am I sending this guy to Caesar? Other than the fact that he appealed, but I got to have something to say. You don't just send somebody to Caesar without some kind of, you know, there's got to be a legal file of some kind. So then we have, in the rest of this passage, up through the end of chapter 26, we have Paul uh, before Agrippa and, his, and, and King Agrippa and the queen or his wife, Bernice, to try to determine what kind of charges to write to Rome. And uh, if you look at chapter um, 26, Uh, they go through a, a lot of pomp and circumstance at the end of chapter 25, verses 23 and following. It's a typical political um, situation where they've got the security and the, the, the honor guard and all this stuff for him to come in. But it, it appears to me as though there are no Jewish people present at this time to bring any accusation because he first, in verse 1 of chapter 26, Agrippa immediately says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul simply has an opportunity to state his case without the hubbub of false accusations and so on. And so he uses this opportunity to basically give the story of his life and his conversion in detail, verses 12 and following, the road to Damascus and God's call to him to preach. And so in verse 19, he summarizes, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I've done what God asked me to do. By verse 23, Paul is kind of wrapping up his message that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And then Festus steps in and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. And some of you perhaps have had friends say that to you. Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You are, your great learning is driving you mad. You're a nutcase. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. You can't be a politician in Israel over the decades without hearing about the tensions between the Jews and the Jesus followers. And without having some idea of who this Jesus character was, even if you weren't there or alive when he was there, you, you'd have to know about him. And Paul points that out to the king. You know about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. This is all public knowledge. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Nothing like putting a guy on the spot. Paul gives a direct personal invitation to Agrippa to make a statement of faith, to trust Christ. 
to acknowledge that, yes, he believes the prophets, he believes what Paul is saying. He's giving the king an opportunity. In front of all of the entourage, whoever else was there, maybe including some Jews, I don't know. Well, King Agrippa is enough of a shrewd politician to know when he's being backed into a corner. And so he sidesteps the question. In verse 28, Paul, Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Some think this is a question. Basically, do you think that in such a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian? Um, I, I don't think that Agrippa is saying, I'm almost ready to trust Christ. It appears to be more of a sidestepping political move, uh, bounce the hot potato off of my hands into somebody else's lap kind of a response. Now, I may be not getting everything that's there, but I, I think that's what's happening. And Paul says, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, whoever else was in that room, might become such as I am, a follower of Christ, of course, except for these chains. Chains. Okay, so Paul is in chains. This dangerous criminal who was saved from a, being beat up by a mob. Well, the king stood up, verse 30, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. There's, not a, there's no case here. We have no case. I don't know what you're going to tell Caesar, but we got nothing. This guy didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong, but he'd had the opportunity to preach to two governors and a king and his wife. And whoever else got to hear, not to mention all those other prisoners who were in and out of jail over the last two years, not to mention all those guards that were in and out of jail over those two years, not to mention all the people that came to visit him and were encouraged in the Lord by Paul's perseverance and his patience and his faith. The Apostle Paul could have been deeply, deeply embittered, angry, frustrated. Two years wasted for nothing. Nothing. I didn't do a thing. That's the way we'd be in jail. I, I didn't do nothing. I'm innocent. Got it all wrong. Stupid judge, stupid lawyer. Have a pity party and sit and sulk in my corner. Got scars from my chains. Two years wasted. Okay, so maybe you wouldn't be that way, but I would have been. But Paul believes that God isn't done with him yet because he's still breathing. You don't need to know a whole lot, but if you're still breathing, God's not done with you yet. Let's keep it simple. I mean, okay. 
you're still breathing. You get up in the morning, your name's not in the obituary. God's not done with you yet. And as long as God is not done with us, let's keep doing what he sent us here to do. The results are his. The work is ours. We must do it in the power of the Spirit. But it's what he gave us to do. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter what's going on around us. <clears throat> you can be anywhere on planet Earth. You can be under any set of circumstances in the world. And your purpose does not change one bit. Glorify God. Live the truth. Trust God. Share the gospel. Look for the blessed hope of the coming of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And I'm sure it was that kind of a perspective that got Paul through what could have been very frustrating times, but ended up being times of great opportunity. Well, I trust you'll keep reading. We're going to keep moving ahead here, Lord willing, in the book of Acts. Next week, we get on a boat that you're not going to want to get on. <clears throat> and we go sailing. Let me just give you some advice. In the, new, in the new heavens and the new earth, if you meet the Apostle Paul and he offers to take you for a boat ride, I'll think about it. Let's stand. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy and goodness. Thank you that your grace sustained Paul. Your spirit was there. He was never alone. You had your hand upon him. In fact, told him that he was going to testify at Rome. And so he knew there was a great work ahead. Thank you for his example of faithfulness and persevering patience. Father, help us. We get frustrated with 30-second 30, 30 red light. Help us, Father, to be better equipped to serve you patiently and well. In Jesus' name, amen.